Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because a lot of times I think when people start to look, you know, out of state, their primary concern is the yield. But that that part of it, the climate that you're in, whatever area you're in, the, the laws and all that stuff, it plays just as crucial of a factor. In In my market, I think there are pluses and minuses to it because it really, really benefits people who have a lot of money, big landlords, because they can afford to have tenants sitting in there for six, nine, 12 months. Mm-hmm. And it really knocks out any of the small time landlords who can't afford it. So a lot of people like in the greater Boston area, there will be people who own maybe like one multifamily. There's not a ton that own two or three or four because of how difficult it is to own them. And then there's bigger kind of landlords because they can afford to kind of, you know, sit there and deal with all that. So when you looked at it, you looked at the laws, you looked at the cash flow. What was the process like of determining where your first out-of-state property was going to be? The first thing we did is identify a large metro area that <clears throat> we thought had good job growth, good population growth, and had a lot of just long-term demographic trends in its favor. So we identified Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we identified Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then we basically, I went and I started with LoopNet and just found, okay, what brokers have the most listings of apartment complexes in those markets? Mm-hmm. And then just started calling those brokers, forming relationships with them. Even if I knew that that particular deal probably wasn't going to fit, I'd call the broker. It gave, it gave me an excuse to start the relationship, right? Yep. And something that was, of course, of interest to them. So I'd call the broker, talk about it, analyze the deal, and then follow back up with them and say, hey, thanks for you know working with me on this. Here's why it's not a good fit. What else do you maybe have that I haven't seen yet? And continue from there. And that's that's how we just you know started to infiltrate those markets. Okay. So you looked at Atlanta, you looked at Texas, you landed in the Atlanta area first, right? Uh, yes. Our first one was actually uh, in a town called Macon, about an hour and a half south of hour, yeah, hour and a half south of Atlanta. So in that particular area, are people working in Atlanta or are they working in whatever you would define that market as? In Macon, most of them are working there. Um, you know, Macon's kind of, it's it's one of those slow and steady towns. It's, it's, it doesn't boom and bust, kind of floats along at 2 3%. Um, and candidly, you know, back then in 2011, that was our, our first uh, our first property that we bought was 92 units. And we had to raise, you know, $1.2 million, which was a lot for us to attempt at the time. Um, and it just kind of worked out that we were able to get our first good deal there. Uh, we have much different parameters and requirements for deals now. So it was mm-hmm. part of, it was close to Atlanta. And then that's kind of where we got our first deal. So, Got it. So 92 units, you had to raise 1.2 million. Was that raising pretty much the extent of the purchase price or that was the piece that you needed in order to get the deal done? It was an all cash deal. There was no way it was going to be financed. Uh, so that was everything. That was purchase price, rehab, uh, reserves, all of it. So 1.2 million for 92 units. Basically it's like 7,600 a door. That's crazy. Um, oh yeah, that was that was again. That was 2011, um, and then also, you know, that was it was in the it was in the not a bad area of Macon, but it was in the lower income side of Macon, and it was also 75 percent vacant, which is again something I would not do now. Um, we we you know it 
that property, it worked out great. I mean, we ended up selling it for a good profit and we quadrupled the revenue and everything. But we also learned a lot of things doing that deal that I, I wouldn't redo. And I also wouldn't recommend someone else doing their first deal do. Got it. And so when, when you're when you're doing these deals, your your plan is to hold them for the long haul, right? Yeah, most of our deals are underwritten to between five and seven years and a few are underwritten to ten. Define what you mean by underwritten. Like the loan at that point has to get paid back or when we're when we're calculating our pro formas and we're saying, okay, we expect the internal rate of return to be this or the cash on cash return to be this for year two, three, four, we're presenting to investors generally if I'm saying I'm underwriting the five years, then our marketing package or a pro forma will have a five year table of the expected returns. Yeah. And with an endpoint of okay, we're we're our plan is to sell this in five years. Now, if we get to five years and the market uh, dictates that it would be unwise to to sell, you know, whether it be the market's tough or the market's booming, um, then then we can take a vote of investors and we can stay, we can hold it longer. But we do feel like we you have to give some people a specific, if you're syndicating, you have to give your investors a specific endpoint. It's tough to raise money to say, hey, we're going to buy this thing and just hold it for, I don't know, whenever. Or, I mean, you have to kind of, you have to have a specific plan. So talk about the process of syndicating and, you know, assuming that people know nothing about it. What's the high level overview of exactly what syndication is? Syndication is pooling together uh, people's money so that you can share in a benefit that you otherwise wouldn't be able to generate or receive separately, right? So think of it as a bunch of people going on a cruise. Every individual on that cruise isn't going to buy that ship and own it and float around the Caribbean for two weeks. But if you pull together a couple hundred people with and everyone pays a few thousand dollars, then then it's economical. Everyone shares in the benefit, including the the the, the cruise company that owns the ship, right? Mm-hmm. So with an apartment syndication, what you're doing is saying, look, I've got this great deal. We need $4 million for it. We're going to get a, a Fannie Mae loan for $3 million. We need a million in cash. And you know what? Uh, let's have the 20 of us each put in $50,000. We can, we can take down this deal that separately none of us would be able to get. Mm-hmm. And then we can all share in the cash flow uh, by pooling together our resources. And so every quarter, you know, whatever profit the property makes, we distribute it. So that's that's kind of the, the high level version of it. So, uh, again, in theory, if you guys separated out all of your money together and you decided you were going to buy one single family each, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers want to be as good, right? Exactly. And the and going back to what we were talking about before about evictions and vacancy is whatever guy is the unlucky guy that has the single family that gets the tenant in there who doesn't pay for nine months, he's hosed, right? He just probably lost a couple of years worth of cash flow. Whereas if you pulled your money together and you've got a 92-unit apartment complex and you get one bad tenant or a couple of bad tenants – it's not going to it's not going to significantly impact the bottom line. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to have one guy that gets hosed. Uh, if you know your risk is spread out and you have more economies of scale. Yeah, so it's interesting because when I first started buying multifamily properties, we started with buying two what we call two families in the Boston area. And then we came to realize pretty quickly that when you have a vacancy, you know, you've got 50% of the people not paying you. Yeah. So we we made a hard and fast rule probably within the first year that we were buying properties that we weren't going to buy anything that was lower than three units. And now we're looking at even bigger than that, because again, 
you know, it's just the numbers work out better. You tend to get a bigger discount. And then you have one problem tenant out of a 10 or a 20 unit complex building. Um, it's a lot better. So I'm assuming that that putting together a syndication, I mean, at least for me, I've never done that. I've raised private capital in order to fund my deals, but I've never raised capital for any one specific property like that. What is the process like of of trying to raise funds like that? Well, it's it's something that you're doing while you're looking simultaneously while looking for deals, especially if you're just starting out. So, you know, if someone's looking to make the jump from single family to multifamily or maybe small multifamilies to syndicated larger ones, you start talking to people about what you're doing and the type of deals you expect to be doing and the kind of returns that you think you're going to be able to make and get people interested and kind of build up that potential investor list. Um, Once you once you have an investor list and then once you have a deal, you're doing a syndication when you take uh, you accept an investor's money and they are not a general partner. So if you're taking passive investors that are just that are going to give you the money and you're going to be the operator and they're a limited partner, meaning they're not helping you make day-to-day management decisions. They're not um, helping with well, what could, what do we do for a renovation? Once you do that, you're syndicating. And then the step, the next step is to bring in a syndication attorney. You don't have to understand the, all the complicated laws. You just kind of have to know when you're doing a syndication and then hire that attorney to make sure that you stay on the good side of the SEC. So how many different parties are usually part of a syndication deal that you do? You know, for me, our average, our, our minimum investment is 50, usually 50. And I'd say the average actual investment is probably 80, 85. So it depends on the size of the raise. I think the last one had 42 investors in it. Mm, wow. But I think so, more, more typical is probably 20. That's crazy. So 40, 40 people that have never met each other, they don't know each other whatsoever, or are some, some way that they're maybe connected in some way? I would say probably half of them are just you know, no connection to each other whatsoever. And then maybe another 10 may were, were referrals. So like there was someone who invested on a previous deal and then they brought in that, that you know, another person on this next deal. So they know each other. And then there's probably another 10 or 15 that are just have been with us for, you know, eight, nine, 10 deals. And we go to masterminds together. We're in a, um, a bunch of us in our mastermind called Abundance. So we all know each other. They know each other. But in general, you know, there's a small group that knows each other, but most of them are scattered all over the country and from Canada and other places. And are they typically already investors who are always out looking for deals or are a lot of the people brand new to this and you're presenting an opportunity that they've never kind of seen before? It's both. We've got people who own their own apartment complexes, but they want to diversify into other deals. Uh, We've got, uh, actually, I've got some guys who are very successful flippers that just want to diversify into, um, you know, passive income from real estate. We've got doctors who may might make five, six, eight hundred thousand dollars a year and don't have, you know, love real estate, but don't have the time and expertise to go hunt for deals, especially in this tight of a market. And then we also have people who want to get into their own syndications and become syndicators and go buy their, do their own big deals. And so they'll invest in one or two syndications from, um, you know, other sponsors so that they can number one, see and learn the process. But then also uh, when you go to get an agency loan through like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they want to see your experience and they will actually count it if you're an investor in another syndication. Mm. So some people do it for that too. 
And so what's the hardest part of putting the syndication deal together? Is it finding a really good deal? Is it finding the investors? What What is the, the biggest difficulty there? These days, the hardest part is is finding a truly good deal. Um, now, it, in, and if, if you are already fairly well connected, or let's say you've been flipping for a while and you know, you're using other people's money to flip, then getting the money for a really good deal won't be that difficult. If you're just starting out, you don't know any investors, then getting the money will be a little bit more difficult. But candidly, in this market, the most difficult thing is finding that great deal. And if you find a great deal, uh, you will be able to find the money for it. Yeah. So again, that's the same premise. I mean, I, I don't deal with syndication and I don't buy large apartment complexes like this, but that's the same exact premise on the, you know, the smaller residential side. You find a deal, it's easy to find the money, whether that's a single family fix and flip or a three family. The money's actually, it's, it's kind of interesting because as the deals get harder to find, you know, and the stock market's up, people have more money and they're chasing yeah. less deals. So the money part of it becomes a lot easier. Going back to 2010, 2011, 2012, I remember there being periods of time where I did have great deals where I couldn't get the money. And I had great deals in some cases where I couldn't even wholesale because I would go to another investor and they, they'd be like, oh yeah, no, it sounds like a good deal. But, um, you know, I've got another one that I can just buy down the street and, you know, why pay you a fee type of thing. You're so, absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. So that um, it's interesting because people always say you can make money in every market and it's definitely true, but kind of the rules of the game change as the market changes. So um, you went to Atlanta, um, you went to Dallas. Did you end up doing deals in Dallas? Yeah, we did about 600, uh, 600 units in Dallas. We've actually sold out of there now, um, but yeah, Dallas was a good market. So you sold down in Dallas. Was that because the the contract? Well, um, I don't know the maturity. I guess of what you you would call the deal matured, and you guys decided it would be a good point. Or did you sell because you felt like market had gone up so much and it's just time to take profits? Yeah, it was a combination of the two, but more the latter. So we, you know, we underwrote those deals on on five year timelines. And a couple of years in, we were getting unsolicited offers that exceeded our five-year purchase, our five-year sale price. Mm. And at that point, we, you know, it's like we said, you know what? And, and those properties, those were some of our earlier properties, also. And we're like, you know what? These are really good prices for these properties. These properties, they were C properties, and they were in areas where during the, the, the this cycle, they've done those areas have done okay. But whenever the next recession hits those mm -hmm. kind of lower income areas get tend to get hit first and get the hardest. So we said, you know, I, we think it makes sense just to get out of these now while the getting's good. So we went ahead and sold them and we have not gotten back into the Dallas Fort Worth market. Not because we think it's a bad market, just because everyone and their mother uh, knows it's a great market. Yep. And so rather than just compete with money from China and all of these places, We've got longstanding good relationships and pretty deep roots in the southeast and in other areas. So we just decided to go deeper there versus try to cover more area. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about investing, you know, outside of where you live is you can really start thinking more about those things. I, I, I would say the majority, and I don't know the percentage of this, but anytime I talk to anybody, the majority of people are investing in their backyard. And obviously, if you're investing in your backyard and things are good and markets going up and all that good stuff, it's great. Um, but if it's not, you you really you don't have much control over the variables. But when you're going out of state, 
you can pick and choose where, where you think has the right demographic shifts and, um, you know, where you're going to, you know, get your best ROI. So you're not focusing in Dallas anymore. You said the Southeast, is there anywhere besides the area of Atlanta that you really like right now? Yeah. You know, I like, um, Orlando, Tampa, Northward to the Northern half of Florida. Uh, the Carolinas are doing well. Um, Eastern Tennessee, uh, I do like Houston, um, and there's plenty of other good markets scattered around the country, but those are the ones that I focus on and, and know fairly well. So you said um, variables you consider, tenant landlord laws, ROI, anything else that you're really looking at when you're going, you said demographic trends, right? Yep. Um, specifically, I'm, I'm assuming job growth. Yes, job growth, population growth, and at this point in the cycle, we're we're being a little bit more defensive. So if I'm, if I'm looking at a market and this factors into, you know, whether I'm trying to make the decision to hold longer or buy something new in the market is we're being really careful about what are the economic drivers in the market. Um, so right now I like to, especially like to see um, higher education. So large universities, uh, a little bit of military medical, so large medical centers, um, things that are somewhat insulated from recessions. Again, not that I don't, I don't see a recession imminent right now, but we're what, seven, eight, nine years in, depending on who you talk to. And so we're looking for markets that the, whatever's driving the job growth and the economic growth is something that's going to be probably, you know, resilient against the recession or won't be affected in a recession. So like Orlando's booming right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Disneyland, Disney, and one thing we love about Disneyland is it's not going anywhere. Disneyland is not going to shut down or move to, you know, Columbus, Ohio, because it's cheaper. But part of the reason it's booming is because the economy's good, been good for a long time. Everybody's taking vacations, just doing really well. So, you know, that would be, uh, we like Orlando because Disneyland's not going anywhere, but I would be a little bit concerned about something that's, you know, overly reliant on tourism because whenever a recession comes, tourism tends to go down. Um, so that's that's kind of how we've we've shifted a little bit. And we, we want areas that are growing for things that um, will be stable. Mm. Now you mentioned at, you mentioned at this point in the cycle, dot dot dot. Where <laughs> yeah. Where where do you think that exactly is? And I, I ask every single person because and it's nothing. Obviously, anybody who tells you they know, you know, with a hundred percent certainty, doesn't know what they're talking about because you can just never know because there's so many variables. There's interest rates. There's demographic trends. There's rules. There's laws. There's there's everything. But what's your gut telling you? Yeah, I was gonna say I, I got my crystal ball off Amazon like everyone else. So, yeah. um, you know, I just at this point, right now, there just isn't anything that. And I talked to lots of other owner operators and syndicators. There's just nothing that we can immediately see that that should derail. Um, the economy and especially what's going on in multifamily. With that said, you know we've been expanding for a long time. Cap rates have, have you know, are, are record low levels, so it's tough to see them going much lower, especially with with interest rates rising. So I mean, we're definitely in a mature part of the cycle. I would expect going forward um, maybe a bit of a leveling out. And this is, you know, but I don't see any kind of, you know, crash, certainly nothing like the Great Recession that, that we had in 2008. Um, of course, the caveat is that we don't have some black swan event, you know, uh, a collapse of a major overseas economy or, or a major war or, or something like that. 
Um, you know, I, so I, I, it's tough to, you know, I mean, I, the, the, the fun thing about being a doom and gloom guy is if you do it long enough, eventually you're going to be right. You know, yep. I mean, you just predict every year, if you predict the crash sooner or later, it's going to, you're going to, you're going to be a hero. Um, yep. and so, you know, while we're definitely being cautious, all those things I talked about a few minutes ago, really everything looks pretty good. And, and, in in my concern, if I had any, would really be more in the short term. Like, you know, don't buy something and and it only works if you can get out in three years because three years from now we might be in a tough spot. But if you buy a property that cash flows well and you can hold it long enough, especially with multifamily and our current demographic trends, you will be fine. One of my friends and mentors has a, has a saying. He says, you know, don't wait to buy real estate. Buy real estate and wait. And as long as you can cash flow well, you can pretty much ride out anything. And if you hold that real estate long enough, it will pay itself off and you will come out well. Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincamerancoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So when do you predict that flattening? (laughs) <laughs> it depends on what market I'm not, I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. No, I know. You know well, it's, it's really, it's really market dependent. So, yep. um, you know, I just, how about your, how about your market? Cause your market's similar to mine. And we, we literally tend to almost go hand in hand in terms of like the time frame too. So, yeah, so like I, I don't markets like ours. I don't follow uh, LA and San Francisco cause I don't invest here, but I do, I have, you know, I do see reports. Now I've heard that rent growth, especially in the A tier, which is the nice stuff. The newer stuff is really flattened out. Yep. Um, I know in Atlanta where we invest 2016 um, saw a, deceleration of rent growth. So rent growth wasn't going, I mean, rent wasn't going down. It just wasn't increasing at like 7% like it was before. And then it's starting to pick back up again. So it's, you know, and then I also just read something this weekend about, um, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, the rent, some rents are starting to flat, flatten out there. So it's super market dependent. Um, you know, I, yeah, I not, did I answer your question or do you, you want to talk some more markets? <laughs> um, I think we're good on that one. Right. Um, so you mentioned um, Go Bundings. And yes. I think um, I know a little bit about it. And you talked about mastermind programs and stuff like that. And I think it's one thing that um, especially newer investors have to kind of think about. Um, mindset is so huge when you're first starting. I remember when I first started, you know, I grew up in an area um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and pretty much every one of my, you know, friends growing up said I was crazy for getting into real estate. And as I've kind of gotten older and older, I'm surrounding myself now with more like-minded people. Can you talk a little bit about how that's kind of affected you? It's been huge. Um, you know, I, I'm not originally a real estate guy. I was, I used to be a chemical engineer. I knew that I wanted to become an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what, how, or what. And I, you know, so I worked as an engineer for seven years, decided to go into house flipping, which at the time was pre foreclosure. So that meant cold calling people who were in financial distress and saying, hi, can I help you with your financial problems? Right. That's usually not the most friendly phone call. I was not a guy who had the social skills to be on the phone. 
phone. Right? My now wife, I'm, I'm fortunate. I found this out later when she would call me when we were friends and then dating, she would make a list of things to talk about to keep the conversation going. That's, that's how <laughs> yeah. bad I was on the phone. Right. So what do I do? I go into a business that's dependent on cold calling. So it took me 4,576 phone calls to get my first deal. Yeah. Um, in, in flipping. Uh, so I, you know, I wasn't good at it. But were you, were you going to stop until you got that first deal? I was not. I yeah. was not. And that was, I the, love it. yeah. When my wife and I sat down and said, all right, we're going to do this. And even if it kills us, we will do it until we get our first deal. If we don't like it after that, then we can quit. Right. Yeah. But we're, we're going to make it happen. And so, we had that mindset. And, and at the time I had a coach, I wasn't in, GoBundance didn't exist yet. So I had a coach, so that helped. And then when we went into multifamily, uh, I joined GoBundance shortly after that. And, you know, again, this being an entrepreneur, doing the, the, the cold calls, it's not in my natural skill set. So it was, it's been absolutely critical to be in, uh, GoBundance happens to be all guys, but to be in a mastermind of people who have already succeeded and can not only show me the way to do it, but help you know, keep me motivated and keep on track and say, and not have to reinvent the wheel. I'm, I'm not a creative guy. I'm not, you know, smart. I you, you mean, when I listen to some of your guests, Tom, in the systems, then the businesses they built, it blows me away. I mean, it's just awesome. Um, because that's not one of my best skill sets, but the reason I've gotten up to 1800 units is because of hanging out with guys that have done it ahead of me and just, learning from them. I call it, you know, in the corporate world, R&D is, re- is research and development. Well, I call it rip off and duplicate. And, and not in the malicious sense of just somebody else has already figured out. So go hang out with those people, learn from them and just go execute what they've done. And that's how we've built our business. And, and a mastermind uh, has been just absolutely critical for it. And then also, and Tom, you've probably, well, you, you get to talk to a lot of people, but you know, a lot of successful real estate investors and, and entrepreneurs, it can get to be a bit of a lonely world, right? I mean, a hundred percent. You're you're living in a different world than the rest of everybody else that you're talking to. Yeah, and I mean, your, it, your problems are different than the other people, right? Exactly. Yeah, and also, and even even your wins, right? I mean, I can't I can't go to go to my our our church group and be like, yeah, I just closed on a ten and a half million dollar apartment complex, right? Because that's outside of most people's reality and world and they, and they don't understand like wait you have a you have 10 million dollars in the bank no 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 you know so to, yeah. to have to have a, a a group where you can celebrate the wins and, and have people pull you up and through the challenges it's just been absolutely uh incredible and, and a key part of it so one of the other things that you talked about was rip off and duplicate and i think the the thing i always say about real estate investing is it's not like we're developing some new software or technology this stuff is being done the best way that it can already. Yeah. There's there's no need, you know, to to try to do anything, not one thing on your own. I mean, being creative is nice. It's a nice luxury to have if you are creative, but there's no need to be creative and it can actually get in your way if you try to recreate the wheel. So um, talk a little bit about the numbers, the syndication numbers. So what are you shooting for? So someone puts in, say, you know, whatever, $50,000, what type of return? Is it a, like a yield that you want them to get? Yeah. Most, <clears throat> you know, most investors, most, you know, if you, if you're talking with, uh, you know, the, a friend who's going to put their IRA money into your deal, it, most people like to talk, talk in terms of cash on cash. So if yep. I put in, 
you know, we'll just we'll just do a hundred grand just to keep it really even. So if I put in a hundred thousand dollars, know, the deals that we're seeing and doing right now, we're doing value add deals. So that means we're going in and we're we're going to buy a property that's stable, but it maybe it's not managed well or hasn't been kept up well. So it's not producing nearly as much cash flow as it could, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then we're going to have to invest some money into it to do that. So maybe year one, the returns are going to be a bit lower. So you invest $100,000, maybe you get distributions of $6,000, so 6% cash on cash. Mm-hmm. Usually by year two, uh, we're aiming for that to be somewhere between eight to $10,000 in distributions to that investor. So eight to 10% cash on cash. And then usually by years three and onward, we're somewhere in, in, the, in the low double digits. Uh, we've had some that have topped out, you know, eight, nine, 10%. We have others that have topped out 16 you know 20 percent. it just it depends on the deal but we're targeting kind of that that low uh low double digit cash on cash and that doesn't factor in tax benefits from depreciation and pass through and all that kind of stuff that's just the the simple cash on cash and so what about what about um the decision to sell is it is it that when that maturity happens whose decision is it i mean you've got 40 50 people in the deal how does that work? That decision is is the responsible of the sponsor. So, okay. um, so you know, so Tom, if you went and syndicated a deal and you said we're going to sell this in five years, you get to five years and you say, you know what? Yep, it's time to sell this deal. That's your decision. Where the investors come in is if you want to do something different than what's in your operating agreement and your in your, or your PPM. Then, uh, at least how ours are set up, we have to take a vote. So if we get to five years and we're like, hey, you know what? This this property's doing awesome. It's making great returns. This market's doing great. It should keep going for a long time. We think we should hold it. Then what we do is we take a vote of investors. And if it's 75% or greater approval, then we can continue to hold that property for whatever time period we, we specified. So you mentioned one of the benefits of being a sponsor is some of that decision-making ability. What about other, are there other financial benefits for being the sponsor? Yeah, absolutely. You get to, one of the best parts about being a sponsor is you get to participate in the upside. So we've got, you know, if you buy a property uh, and create a few million dollars in, in, profit or equity for your investors. And then you go and sell that, you get what's called a carve out. And that, you know, everyone structures it differently, but I'd say on average, it's maybe 25%. So let's say you create a million dollars in profit, 750,000 goes to your investors and 250,000 goes to you. Mm. And that, and, and now, and if you invested your own cash in the deal, that's on top of the return you got on your own cash. So, yep. so you know that's definitely a, um, a a big benefit. The other reason, and this is really good with with multifamily, is if you are looking to build a a cash flow business, multifamily syndication works really well because not only do you get a carve out of the profit when you sell, um, you also get a carve out of the distributions you're making every quarter, right? So, mm-hmm. it, let's say you're distributing a hundred thousand dollars a year. As long as you're meeting the preferred return to your investors, then you get twenty five thousand dollars a year from from that property. So that's cash flow that you can you can count on, regardless of whether or not you keep doing deals. And that's one of the things I love about multifamily over flipping, is you you do a deal and that deal keeps on producing cash flow for both you and your investors as long as you hold it. Mm-hmm. And you get to a certain point where that cash flow runs your business and you don't have to do any deals. It's not, you don't have to continually, oh, I got to do the next deal, got to do the next deal. You can get to a point where you do deals 
because they just just because they're good deals and not because another one needs to be done. Right, exactly. Um, so for the people that are interested in learning how to put a deal together, how did you learn how to put your first deal together? Uh, at the time, I, you know, I, met, I, th- I think I mentioned I had a single family mentor and I ta- went and sat down and said, hey, you know, I, we think apartments are going to be doing awesome here in the near future. Do you know anyone who's doing apartments? He's like, yeah, I know a guy who's bought about 800 units. And so we talked to him and we worked out a deal and just hired him to do an hour phone call a month for the next for the next uh, 12 months and kind of teach us the business. You know, these days there's there's a lot more options uh, for getting into it. Uh, and the first thing I would do is just start trying to just network with, with other people who are doing it um, on like, for example, bigger pockets. There's lots of real estate meetups, three books I would recommend to get started is go uh, David Green's long distance real estate uh, investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's focused on single prop on single family, but the principles are the same, right? Building a business in a team that's somewhere not where you live. And then Dave Lindahl has two great books, um, Emerging Markets and Multifamily Millions. Mm-hmm. Those, give, those, give, those give you a really good idea of kind of what is an emerging market. And when I mean emerging market, that's a market that, that has a lot of growth ahead of it. Let's make it, you know, that's probably the simplest definition. And then there's just a lot of information about, you know, getting a management company and what kind of team members do you need. Um, do that and then, the best way, you know, getting back to what we said earlier, the hardest thing these days is finding a deal. So the best way to be able to spot a deal is to look at a hundred bad ones. So just start, you know, get on LoopNet, sign up for the, you know, the broker's websites and just start looking at deals. Even if you don't feel like you truly know what you're doing, it, it's gonna, it's gonna start building your senses and your familiarity. Just start looking at deals. And then when you're talking with investors, you can, uh, with integrity, say, yeah, I'm looking at these deals. I'm doing this. I'm talking with these brokers and start building excitement and building your investor list. So we talked about the benefits of being a sponsor, the benefits of putting a deal together. What about the benefits of being a participant in one of these deals? Quite a few. Uh, one is you can you can easily diversify, right? Rather than let's let's say you actually do have a million dollars that you could go buy your own apartment complex with. Rather than just put that in one, you could split it up into you know. 10 or 20 different uh, apartment complexes in different markets. So you can spread yourself across deal risk. You can spread spread yourself out um, and and kind of eliminate market risk. Mm -hmm. The other advantage is if like going back to, um, let's say, you know, you're a doctor and you make $800,000 a year, or you're a very successful and busy house flipper and you've got, you generate good cash flow and you have a lot of investable, investable money, but you don't have time to go analyze a hundred apartment complexes. And so rather than you do that, you can say, all right, well, I'm going to take a small chunk of money and I'm going to put it with somebody who that is their job and that that is their expertise. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to you know, put that money with them and let them be responsible for that. And then they, and be a passive investor. And then they send me the check. So um, if you don't either, if you don't, don't have, or don't want to take the time and expertise to go find and do your own deal. And then also just as, as ways of diversifying or, or getting into assets that you might not otherwise be able to get into um, someone with, $200,000 is just not going to be able to buy a 150-unit apartment complex. But if you pull together with other investors, then you can do that. Mm, makes sense. Um, so you're looking for one of these deals. How do you know who's a good sponsor, who's not, who knows what they're talking about? If you're kind of, you've got the cash, you're that doctor, you've got, you're making 500000 a year, you've got a million on the sidelines. 
how do you make a determination? Definitely, that 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 that's a really good a really good question and point. Um, vet everyone as much as you can, and, and a part of it at the end of the day does come down to a, a gut call. Um, and I would say once you make that call don't go big, right? Maybe so, you know, the first time you're investing with someone, throw in 50. And then if it goes well, maybe go big after that. Definitely ask for investor referrals. So, you know, say, hey, um, do you have three people, current investors that I can talk to? And once you talk to those investors, hopefully that conversation goes well. Because, you know, if the guy, if the sponsor can't send you three people who are going to say say nice things, that's not a good sign. So let's assume those three, those three people say good things. Ask those three guys, do you know anybody else who's invested that I could talk to? See if you can get a referral of a referral. Because that's going to be a truly authentic conversation, right? Because it wasn't, wasn't directly connected. Yep. Also, uh, ask for, for past deals. Um, say, can you give me a pro forma that you sent out three years ago and then send me the investor reports between now and then? I like that one. So you can compare yeah. what actually happened versus what the pro forma was and then ask lots of questions about that. So is there a minimum, if you were putting your money into a deal, is there a minimum amount of time that you'd want a sponsor to have been operational for? For me, and this this is just me me personally. I'd want them. I'd say at least at least dead minimum three years, if not probably four or five. Uh, I I I'd be a little more hesitant about someone who just jumped in a year ago, um, unless they've partnered up with a more experienced person, and then that that can mitigate that. And so I that actually that's a good point for someone starting out. If you're concerned about raising money or having good track record, see if you can go partner with somebody who already does and that will get you over that hurdle quickly. Good deal. Um so we're we've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to ask you a couple more questions. So a lot of the people who are listening, they want to become real estate investors but they haven't done it yet. Can you talk just really briefly about how your life has changed compared to what you were doing in a 9 to 5 versus now and was it worth it? Oh, a hundred times worth it. Uh, yeah, it, it's the freedom. Uh, it, you have the freedom and control. Um, you can, you know, I, I joke we can. I can work any twelve hours a day I want, but um, you know that in reality that doesn't. You know, that it, it, it's not not that much. Um, being an entrepreneur, I still work twelve hours a day. I, I love what I do. I love real estate. Um, you know, even if I could work one hour a day, I, I wouldn't want to do it. Well, and then that, and see that, not that, that, you, that, that gets to the heart of it is it's like, yeah. well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what work is anymore. Like it kind of, it yeah. kind of, you know, blends in. There's certainly some tasks that eh, I don't really feel like doing, but yeah. in general, I love it. Right. So to, to do something that you love 12 hours a day is far better than doing something you hate for eight or even six hours a day. Right. Or, yeah. and, and, and then just the freedom to, 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 to develop your own schedule, to be with your family when you want, um, you know, for me to go surfing or skiing when I want. And yeah, I'll, I'll work on Saturday, but I spent Wednesday surfing mm-hmm. um, to, to, you know, to be able to do that. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, someone might be saying, well, geez, you know, I don't love analyzing deals or I don't love, you know, dealing with tenants or whatever. Okay. Number one, partner with or outsource that to somebody else. And number two, uh, fall in love with the outcome. Right. If you fall, if you fall in love with the outcome, that will really help motivate you and and help you enjoy the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, become you know be, be if you become a lot of times you hear oh do what you're passionate about. Well, 
sometimes it actually works the other way around. If you get really good at something, you tend to develop a passion for it mm-hmm. and the outcome is just as good. So what would be, and the last question, what would be one piece of advice you would give to somebody who's getting started in real estate investing? Get well, really get started. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are you know, well, I don't know what to do. I mean, going from single family to multifamily can be like being, a, you know, a mosquito at a nudist colony, right? You know what you want to do, but you don't know where to start. There's just, it, it, there's just so much. And it's, it's come up with your goals. What you know, do, do you want to buy a five unit, a 10 unit or a hundred unit? Write those down and then work backwards and figure out what are the steps I need to take to start going in that direction and then commit to each day taking some kind of action or step to getting there. And even better, get an accountability partner, join a mastermind, find someone at uh, a real estate meetup group that has similar goals and, and partner together so that you have someone that holds you accountable to actually doing it and, 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 you know, taking that first step. And then I would add to that, especially in this market, relentless, persistence. It is not easy uh, because, you know, deals are hard to come by pretty much in any type of real estate, but it is more than worth it. And uh, just, you know, continue to persist. Don't, you know, if it's, you know, you hear all the time, oh, I sent out three mailers and nothing happened. Well, yeah, like you got to do a little bit more than that. It takes longer. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, No, I like all those. I think um, finding a mentor is key for 99% of people. Hard work is, you know, a guarantee. And then, um, and then the other one is, was what? Uh, the relentless persistence, the, uh, finding mm-hmm. a mentor and oh, we talk, um, I mean, deciding, narrowing oh, taking down. A step. No, taking a step, taking the yeah, first yeah. step. Yeah, yeah. Yes. figure out your end, but then just take that step. Yeah. You've, you've got to do it. You, you know, don't be afraid of mistakes. You will make mistakes. It's just, what do you do after you make that mistake? So just, just do it. So I'm sure there are people who are on here that are interested in learning more about syndication. If they are interested, is there any way that they can reach out to you? Yeah, uh, I'm on Bigger Pockets LinkedIn. Um, also, our website. It's uh, <laughs> it, we we focus on the real estate, not the website, so it needs yep. a bit of an overhaul. But uh, right, now I'm gonna uh, check this out. What is it? Uh, just vantage. It's Vantage Point Acquisitions. So it's uh, www like vantage p is in point acq dot com. And there's a contact us uh, page on there. If you fill that out, it goes right to my email. Uh, I'll get, I'll definitely uh, respond back to you. And uh, we need, like I said, we need to update that on, we need to get, get some more properties on there and make it look uh, less uh, late nineties, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. The, the making money is the most important, right? Yes, exactly. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for, for joining us today. A lot of great, valuable information. A lot of stuff I didn't know. I'm probably going to end up reaching out to you about some of that syndication stuff. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor. And especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.